So the question I want to start with is this. What should we do at those times when we know what God has promised? We know His promise from the Word. We, 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 some promise we're clinging to. We know what He's promised, but everything we see around us says the opposite. You know those times? We, we know God's promise, but everything we see around us, everything we feel in our hearts, maybe all the circumstances around us, that's all saying the opposite of what God's promise says. What should we do at those times? Let me give you some examples. We know that God promises, 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 13, that whenever we face a temptation, God is faithful and He will provide a way of escape for every single temptation we'll ever face. This is such great news. So there's the promise. But there's times when we feel the power of the temptation so strongly and we feel the, the, the sin growing around our hearts so powerfully we think, I'm never going to escape this. I'm just done for. I might as well just surrender and get it over with and just go ahead and sin and be done. What should we do at those times when we know the promise, but we're, we're feeling that the power of sin might be too much and the escape may not come? Another example, God promises in his word that he will use us to bring people to faith in Christ, to forgiveness of sins, to the, the joy of knowing him. There's the promise. But there's times when it seems like nothing's happening. Nobody's interested. Or maybe our family members or friends maybe neighbors or, or work associates, like nothing's happening. And we can think, well, maybe God's not going to do that. Maybe I should just stop and back off and forget about it. What should we do at those times? One more example. We know that God has promised that he, he works everything in our lives for, for good, great good in his glory for us. So he's promised all things work together for good, right, to those who love God and are called according to his purpose. There's the promise. But what should we do at those times when it looks like everything is going wrong? Finances, difficult. Work, struggles. Marriage, tensions. Parenting, problems. Health, difficulties. Friendships, becoming strained. We know what God's promised, but it looks like everything is going wrong. So the question is, what do we do at those times when we know what God's promised in His Word? But everything we can see says the opposite. What do we do at those times? The answer is found in Genesis chapter 32. Let's turn there. I'm sorry, Genesis 23. We are studying Abraham's life. Been going from Genesis 12, and we'll take it through Genesis 25. Abraham's life. And what we're going to see this morning in Genesis 23 is what to do at those times when we know what God's promised, but everything we can see, maybe everything we feel, maybe all of our circumstances are saying the opposite. What should we do? And here in Genesis 23, we read about the death of Abraham's wife, Sarah. They've been married for around 100 years, 100 years. And she dies and goes to be with the Lord. So let's start with this question from the passage. How did Abraham respond to Sarah's death? And look at verses 1 and 2. Genesis 23, verses 1 and 2. 
Sarah lived 127 years. These were the years of the life of Sarah. And Sarah died at Kiriath Arba, that is Hebron, in the land of Canaan. And Abraham went in to mourn for Sarah and to weep for her. So when Sarah died, Abraham goes into the place where her body was and he mourned and he wept for her. Now, I don't think this is the main point of this chapter, but I think it would do us good to, to linger here a bit and think about this. Because some Christians think that if you're strong in faith, and if you're rejoicing in the Lord always, which we're commanded to do, and if you know that Jesus is your all-satisfying treasure, some Christians think that if you're, if you're strong in faith, then you should never mourn or weep. So if you think that, I would appeal to you that that's not what we see in the Scriptures. Jesus wept, right? He wept over Jerusalem. He wept over Lazarus' death. There's a time in Acts chapter 20 where Paul is saying goodbye to the elders of the church at Ephesus, and they are weeping because for all they know, this is the last time they're going to see Paul. And here we see Abraham, godly, faithful Abraham, weeping and mourning over his wife's death. Now, why? Why do we mourn and weep? I mean, it's really obvious, but I want to raise the question in case you struggle with thinking of whether Christians should do this or not. It's obvious. Sarah was a precious gift to him from God. A precious gift. Almost 100 years of marriage. Precious gift from God. And and what does love do? Abraham loved Sarah. So what, is, what does love do when you receive a precious gift like Sarah from God? Well, you thank God. You worship God. You praise God. That's what love does, right, when you receive a precious gift. And so what does love do when, when God takes a precious gift? Well, it's appropriate. It's right. You weep. You mourn because she was a precious gift. And that's what was in Abraham's heart. See, we, we receive gifts from God but we hold them in our hands lightly, right? God gives, and then God takes away. And because we're holding them lightly, we don't move into bitterness. We don't move into anger. We mourn, yes. We weep because, oh, Father, she was such a gift. Thank you. I miss her, Lord. See, that's, that's right to say and to feel. But, Lord, I trust you. You are good. Your timing is perfect. Yes, Lord, but oh, this is hard. Nothing wrong with that. And I think that the Lord at that, that moment is weeping and mourning with you. Your wife is a precious gift, husbands. In fact, husbands, let me, let me just take that a little bit further. And does your wife know that she's a precious gift to you? Man, does she know that? Have you expressed that to her? Does she feel that she's a precious gift to you? Don't say, well, she ought to know. I've been married to her for so long. I always provide. You know, I work really hard on my job. She's got to know. Man, let me appeal to you. That's wrong. Okay. Have you told her? Do you tell her often? Are you gracious with her? Are you kind to her? Do you honor her? When you come home from work, is it, I've done my part. Now it's just time for me to just do my own thing. Or when you walk in the door, it's like, Hun, how are you? How's your day been? Let's sit down and talk. Let's chat. Okay, that's not in this passage, but it's in many other passages. So I just want to throw that out there. I was thinking about how precious 
Sarah was to Abraham. Here he is, he's mourning and he's weeping. Man, let's let our wives know that they are precious and important to us before the Lord takes them away, right? Let's let them know now. But what I want you to see is that Abraham mourns and weeps. And remember, Paul says that when someone who knows the Lord is taken to be with the Lord, dies and is taken to be with the Lord, we do mourn, but not as those without hope. Remember that? So Abraham is mourning here. He is grieving here. But it's not without hope. It's like, oh, Father, I miss her. But, oh, Father, the day is coming when I'm going to be before you in glory. And Sarah's going to be there, and all the saints are going to be there, and forever we're going to worship your glorious name. So I know death is not the end. Sarah was trusting you and your Messiah, who you're going to save the world through. She was trusting you, Lord. And so she's saved, and she's there already. Oh, praise you, and Lord, we're all going to be there. So he was mourning, and he was weeping, but not without hope. And that's what we are called to do. Now, let me give you one example of how my grandfather did this. I remember this story. I, I just love this, this story. Here's what happened. So um, it's kind of sad. I was reading it to Jan last night, and we both got all choked up. Uh, my dad was going through my grandfather's papers, and he found a little note that my grandfather had written right after he'd received the phone call from the doctor saying that his wife, Grace, that was her name, his wife, Grace, had, had passed away. And here's what was written in this note. June 11th, 1966, 2.30 p.m., grace at home with the Lord. 54 years, nine months of wonderful life together. Good night, honey. We will see each other in the coming eternal morning. Charles. Do you see the morning and the weeping there? Do you see the hope there? We grieve, but not as those without hope. Okay, so grieve. Grieve. With hope. All right, that's what Abraham does. So Sarah's death moved Abraham to weep and mourn. But Sarah's death also raised a crucial question that Abraham had to answer. And the question was, where should Abraham bury Sarah's body? Important question. You'll see more why in a moment. Do you remember how Joseph, when he was in Egypt and close to death, he made his people swear that they would not bury him in Egypt, that they would take his bones back to the promised land? Remember that? Because it's important to be buried in your home country, in, in, in the land that is your land. That's that's. That's what was going on in the Old Testament time period. And so when God delivered Israel from Egypt, as they were leaving Egypt, they were carrying Joseph's bones because they were going, heading back to the promised land because they committed to Joseph they would do that. Now, Sarah and Abraham had come from Haran. Let's get the map up. I'll show you where that is. They'd come from up here, Haran, okay, which is 955 miles from the promised land and here where they are now. This was their home country in Haran. So maybe Abraham should take Sarah's body back up to Haran and bury her there. Maybe. But God had promised to give the land of Canaan to Abraham and his children as their land. 
Egypt, their home country. God had promised that. Let me show you two scriptures. Genesis 13, 14, and 15. The Lord said to Abram, after Lot had separated from him, Lift up your eyes, Abram, and look from the place where you are, northward and southward and eastward and westward. For all the land that you see, I will give to you and to your offspring forever. So he's looking all around the land of Canaan, and God says, I'm going to give it all to you and your offspring. Then look at Genesis 17, 8. God says, and I will give to you and your offspring after you the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan, for an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. So Abraham had God's promise, God's promise that he and his children would be given the land. But the problem was Abraham had been living there for 25 years in this land of Canaan, and God had not yet given him any of the land. 25 years. He'd been living like a nomad there. We know that because of verses 3 and 4, Genesis 23, verses 3 and 4. And Abraham rose up from before his dead, that is from before Sarah, and said to the Hittites, I am a sojourner and foreigner among you. Now see, that phrase sojourner and foreigner, that shows that Abraham had been living like a nomadic existence in the land of Canaan. A sojourner, a foreigner, or somebody who's just passing through the land, doesn't own any property. And so that's Abraham for 25 years. He hasn't had any land there. He's just been traveling from place to place. But Abraham has the promise, the promise that God will give him the land of Canaan. He doesn't want to bury Sarah in in some foreign land that's not home, but God has promised that this would be your home and your offspring's home. So the question is, what is Abraham going to do? He has God's promise, I'm going to give you the land, but he sees no evidence of that. He's been there for 25 years, nothing has happened yet. What's he going to do? And like I said at the beginning, back to those three examples, this is what we face often in our lives. Okay? Will we trust God's promise that he will provide a way of escape for temptations, for example, Will we trust his promise to provide a way of escape, even though the the power of this temptation just seems like it's unstoppable? Will we trust his promise, even though what we see says something different? Will we live by faith and trust God's promise he's going to use us to save people, even though it doesn't look like anybody's interested or we don't have any connections, but will we live by faith and trust his promise? Will we live by faith and trust that God, even though everything looks like it's going wrong, I trust you. You are working these things out to bring me great good in your glory. Help me to trust you. That's what we're seeing in this passage. Abraham is facing a time where he has God's promise, the the word God promised to him, I will give you the land. But everything Abraham can see says otherwise. So what does Abraham do? Well, the answer is in the rest of this chapter. Start with verses 3 and 4. Abraham rose up from before his dead, said to the Hittites, I'm a sojourner and foreigner among you. Give me property among you for a burying place that I may bury my dead out of my sight. So Abraham tells the Hittites he wants to bury Sarah there in Canaan. 
Why? Because God has promised, this is going to be our land. This is going to be the land God's going to give to me and to my children. I see no evidence from that, from my circumstances, but I've got God's promise. We're going to bury Sarah here. And so Abraham decides to to live by trusting God's promise. Remember, this is what Paul describes as living by faith and not by sight. There are times, I would guess some of you right now are facing this situation where you know what God's promised you, you know you're called to live by faith, but from what you can see, all your circumstances, everything you can see, maybe everything you feel says otherwise than what God has promised. But you know what God has promised. And so here, Abraham, even though he has no evidence except for God's promise that God's going to give him the land, he trusts God's promise. He clings to God's promise. All he has is God's promise, and he clings to it. And he says, I want to bury Sarah here in this land. And that's the main point of this chapter. We know this because the rest of these verses, starting verse 3 all the way through to verse 20, Moses goes into great detail about Abraham buying this land. And as we read these, here's what we're going to see. What's emphasized is that Abraham was not loaned a tomb to use. He said no to that. Abraham said no to being given a plot of land. He said no to that. Abraham wanted to buy a plot of land. He is sinking his roots in here. He is committed. This is his land. He's settling here. This is his permanent dwelling because God's promised to give it to him. That's what we're going to see unfolding in these verses. Start with verse 5, 5 and 6. The Hittites answered Abraham, Hear us, my Lord. You are a prince of God among us. Bury your dead in the choicest of our tombs. None of us will withhold from you his tomb to hinder you from burying your dead. So they wanted to give him a tomb that he could use for Sarah. Look what Abraham says, verses 7 through 9. Abraham rose, bowed to the Hittites, the people of the land. He said to them, if you are willing that I should bury my dead out of my sight, hear me and entreat for me Ephron, the son of Zohar, that he may give me the cave of Machpelah, which he owns. It is at the end of his field for the full price. Let him give it to me in your presence as property for a burying place. So Abraham says, thank you that you are offering me to bury Sarah in one of your tombs, but no, I want to buy. I'm sinking my roots into this land. I'm going to buy a place where Sarah will be buried, where I will be buried, where our kids will be buried. I'm buying a place because I'm trusting God's promise. Abraham refuses the offer of one of their tombs and says, let me buy it from Ephron. Then in verses 10 through 11, Ephron says, okay, I'll give you the cave that you just mentioned. That's verses 10 and 11. Now, Ephron was sitting among the Hittites, and Ephron the Hittite answered Abraham in the hearing of the Hittites, of all who went in at the gate of the city, No, my Lord, hear me. I give you the field, and I give you the cave that is in it. In the sight of the sons of my people, I give it to you. Bury your dead. So Ephron wants to give Abraham the cave and the field. But then in verses 12 through 13, Abraham says, No, I want to buy it. Okay? Do you see how Moses is emphasizing this? He wants us to understand. Abraham said, no, I'm not going to just borrow one of your tombs. No, you're not going to give me a plot of land. I'm buying it. I'm sinking my roots in here. I'm trusting God's promise. This is now our homeland. This is now our home 
country. So look at what Abraham says in verses 12 and 13. Abraham bowed down before the people of the land. He said to Ephron in the hearing of the people of the land, that if you will hear me, I give the price of the field. Accept it from me that I may bury my dead there. Okay, then verses 14 and 15 are kind of puzzling. Not sure if Ephron is saying yes to the purchase or still talking about a gift. Read them. Ephron answered Abraham, My Lord, listen to me. A piece of land worth 400 shekels of silver. What is that between you and me? Bury your dead. But then Abraham goes ahead and gives him the money and buys it. Verses 16 through 18. Abraham listened to Ephron. Abraham weighed out for Ephron the silver that he had named in the hearing of the Hittites, 400 shekels of silver, according to the weights current among the merchants. So the field of Ephron in Machpelah, which was to the east of Mamre, the field with the cave that was in it, and all the trees that were in the field throughout its whole area, was made over to Abraham as a possession in the presence of the Hittites before all who went in at the gate of his city. Abraham bought it. The cave, the field, all the trees, he bought it. And then in verses 19 and 20, the author summarizes this chapter. And notice again what he emphasizes. Notice what Moses, as he's writing this, emphasizes. Verse 19, after this, Abraham buried Sarah, his wife, in the cave of the field of Machpelah, east of Mamre, that is Hebron, in the land of Canaan. The field and the cave that is in it were made over to Abraham as property for a burying place by the Hittites. So, so picture what's just happened here. For 25 years, Abraham has been a nomad in this foreign land. Sarah has died. He knows God's promise to give him this land. But he doesn't want to bury Sarah in some foreign land. I mean, imagine if you were traveling like through Guatemala or Switzerland or Nairobi or the U.S. and this wasn't, that wasn't your homeland. You wouldn't want to bury your spouse there, right? Your homeland. That's, that's what's going on here. So Abraham has been for 25 years a nomad. He can't see any evidence around him that God's going to give this land to him. But God had promised that he would. Abraham has God's promise. And so here Abraham clings to God's promise regardless of what he sees, regardless of what he feels, regardless of what the circumstances are saying. Abraham clings to God's promise. Abraham lives by faith and not by sight. Do you see that here? Now, some of you, that's exactly the struggle you're going through right now. Some difficulty, some problem, your circumstances, what's in your heart, what you're seeing is speaking against what God has promised. You know what he's promised. But circumstances, what you see, what you feel, says the opposite. And God would call you this morning to see God's promise and cling to God's promise and commit to living by faith and not by sight. Now, why? Should we do that? Why live by faith and not by sight? You might be gulping right now thinking, God, ah, it's kind of risky. And it is, no doubt about it. Why should we live by faith? And here's the answer. We'll see it here. Because God is always faithful to his promises. 100% perfect, flawless track record. No one who has ever trusted God's promise, has regretted it, ever. 
even when everything's looking like it's speaking against the truth of God's promise, even when the circumstances are saying something different than God's promise, even when you're feeling like God's promise isn't going to be true, when you trust God's promise, he's always faithful to keep his promise. And that's what we see happening in these next chapters and going through the rest of Genesis. Years later, Abraham dies, and he's buried in the same cave. Then years later, his son Isaac dies, and he's buried in this cave with his wife, Rebecca. Then Abraham's great-grandson Jacob dies and is buried with his wife Leah in that cave. Rachel was somewhere else when she died, so she was buried somewhere else in the promised land. Okay, and then finally, hundreds of years in the future, God gave the land of Canaan, the promised land, all the land that he'd promised to the people of Israel. And so, yes, Abraham, Sarah, Isaac, Rebekah, Jacob, Leah were all buried in their homeland right there, even though when Abraham bought the land, it didn't look like it was their homeland. But Abraham lived by faith and not by sight because God always will be faithful to his promises, and God was. So that's my encouragement to those of you who right now are struggling, saying, I know God's promise, but this, 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 yes, that's all there, but God will be faithful to his promise. I mean, think about the times through the Bible when God has called his people to live by faith, not by sight, and he was faithful. I thought of a couple examples. Think about the people of Israel after they'd left Egypt. Okay, all they could see was the Red Sea in front of them. You know the story, right? And Pharaoh's armies galloping behind them. It's all they can see, but God had promised, I'm taking you to the promised land. And what does God do? He parts the Red Sea, and they go across on dry land, and then when Pharaoh's armies try to get across, the Red Sea comes back again, and they're all destroyed. God was faithful to his promise. They lived by faith, not by sight. God was faithful. Even though it didn't look like it was going to happen, God was faithful to do what he promised. Think about when the people of Israel are heading into the wilderness. This whole nation of people, hungry people, thirsty people, right? Hundreds of thousands of them walking through a desert. I'm not seeing any water. I'm not seeing any food, right? All we see is that this is going to be disaster. But God had promised, I'm taking you through the pro to the promised land. I'm going to provide everything you need. And did God provide everything they needed? You know the story, right? Water from rocks, manna from the skies, quail, right? Meat to eat. Every day they were provided all the food they were needed for the next 40 years. And as soon as they entered the promised land, it stopped. God's faithful to his promise. One other example. Think of the disciples after Jesus had been crucified on the cross. All they could see was Jesus died, the grave, the tomb. That's all they could see. But Jesus had promised, my death isn't any ordinary death. My death is going to pay for the sins of all those who will trust me. I'm going to be punished in their place so they can be forgiven and reconciled to God by faith alone. So Jesus had promised that, and he promised, and to show you that that's what my death is all about, I'm going to rise from the dead. All the disciples could see was, Jesus is dead. The grave, the tomb, that's all they could see. 
But what happened? You know, Jesus rose from the dead, showing that his death was not any ordinary death, but was the payment for our sins so we could be forgiven. And he rose from the dead, meaning we're going to rise from the dead as well. Live by faith, not by sight. That's what we're called to do. See, sight is deceiving. Sight is not the whole story. God's promises are never deceiving. God's promises are always the whole story, which is why we should live by faith and not by sight. Now, back to the three illustrations I mentioned at the beginning. There you are. Maybe like right now, you are facing this temptation, and it is strong, way more powerful than you are. You don't see any way that you could resist this temptation. But God has promised, 1 Corinthians 10, 13, with every temptation, as you seek him and cry out to him, he will provide the way of escape. The way I picture it, it's like when I was a young boy, I used to read World War II stories, and when submarines would like, would like sink and be in trouble, they would send little diving bells down that would attach, and you could go from the submarine into the diving bell and get back up to the top, right? Okay, there you are in the submarine of temptation, right? You pray, God lowers the diving bell. Down, okay, hop in the diving bell. It worked for me anyway, okay. But every time you face a temptation, when you cry out to him, he is always faithful. He will provide the way of escape for that temptation. No matter how powerful, overwhelmingly powerful it might feel, he will do that. You might need to get some brothers around you. Brothers, pray with me. Some sisters around you. Sisters, pray with me. Open up the word. Pray. Seek the Lord. He will always provide the way of escape. Live by faith, not by sight in that situation. You might be discouraged about reaching out to people with the gospel. Maybe when it comes to your family members who don't know Jesus yet, or your friends or, or co-workers or, or neighbors. Maybe like nobody seems interested some distance seems to be there. Well, again, God has promised. He's promised that he will use us to advance the gospel. He's promised to do that. doesn't mean every single person is going to get saved, but he will save people through you and through me. So live by faith. Trust his promise. Pray, say, God, open doors. God, open hearts. Help me know what to do. Reach out in love. Reach out in care. Share your, your testimony. You will see God saving people. No matter how bleak it looks, His promise is sure. Live by faith in His promise, not by sight. One other example. I would guess maybe some of you, you feel like right now everything's going wrong in your life. Maybe it's like work and health and children and marriage or friends or whatever, job, that I mentioned job, everything. Everything you can mention is just wrong. And you're discouraged and you just, you're just at the end. But see, God has promised, Romans 8, 28, we know that God causes all things to work together for good. All things. Romans 8, 28, 29 to 30, for good in his glory. 
Great good is coming for you in his glory. No matter how bleak everything might seem, God is at work bringing you great good in his glory. He's in control. He's not stopped loving you. He is wise. And the day is going to come when you will turn around and say, thank you for that season. So don't live by sight now. Don't be discouraged. Don't feel hopeless. Live by faith. Trust. Say, God, help me. Strengthen me. Trust him that he's working all these problems out in a way that's going to bring you great good in his glory. Now, as I got to this point in, in thinking through the message for today, one last question came to me, and that is, okay, you're, you're, you're saying we should live by faith, not by sight. We should trust God's promise, not just what we see, what we feel, what our circumstances are. Okay, but, but what if I don't have faith? What if like, there's, like, there's like no faith there? I'm just like not believing. What do I do? God's got a promise for that as well. Let me give you two scriptures. One is Mark chapter 9, verse 24. Remember this story? This is where a man brings his demonized son to Jesus. And he says to Jesus, I believe, help my unbelief. And Jesus responds and frees his son from the demon. Now, what I love about Mark 9, 24 is that's how my heart feels almost every morning when I wake up and numerous times throughout the day. It's like, I believe, but oh, there's so much unbelief here, Father. But Mark 9, 24 encourages us to pray and say, I believe, help my unbelief, strengthen my faith. And I promise you, that is one of those prayers that every time you pray it, God will answer yes. Every time. God, I, I believe you enough to come and say, help my unbelief. Second scripture is Romans 10, 17. It says, faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. So you pray, I believe, help my unbelief, and then you open up God's word. Maybe ask a friend, what would be a good scripture for me to pray over? What would be a good passage for me to study? And you, you look at God's word and you read God's word because faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. Anybody who's strong in faith, if you look at their past few hours, days, weeks, they've been in the word of God. Count on it. No one has strong faith who doesn't study and learn memorize, meditate on God's word. Every time you open up God's word, faith will, it'll rise. Keep, your, keep the word closed. Okay, so we want to do it this way. Okay? Every time we pray, I believe, help my unbelief, and then we open up God's word. Some of you may feel like, well, this is all really interesting about live by faith, not by sight. It's been a long time since I've had any faith. I feel like things have been so hard. There's a promise for that. You can live by faith in that as well. Trust that God will give you faith, that he'll strengthen your faith, that he will encourage your faith as you pray and as you open up God's word. And those of you who have never had faith in Jesus Christ, that applies to you too. Because no matter how unspiritual you feel, no matter how much you think, well, you know, religion's for other people, blah, blah, whatever, God can change your heart right now 
All you need to do is say, help me. I'm coming to you as I am. I've seen your faithfulness in Genesis 23. I've seen your love. I've seen your mercy towards Abraham. I've heard about Jesus, about how I can be completely forgiven. I come to you. Give me faith. Change my heart. Show me who you are more clearly. He will do that as well. So Grace Church, live by faith, not by sight. And if you're not yet trusting Jesus, don't let that stop you from turning to him and say, help me, strengthen my faith. Give me more confidence in you. That may be that you're coming back to the Lord after a long time, or maybe you've never had trust in Christ. Still the same, come to him and say, help me, strengthen my faith. Strengthen me so I can trust you and know you more. And he will. Let's stand together. I want to pray this over us. God, I pray for every single one of us here, especially those, Lord, who are struggling to trust your promise because what they see is saying something different, what they feel is saying something different. Their circumstances are saying something different. But I pray that right now, Lord, you would help them see you and your faithfulness, that you have never broken a promise. Help them see that. Help them feel that deep in their hearts, Lord, right now. And just cry out to the Lord and say, Lord, I believe. Help my unbelief. Ask him to do that. Help my unbelief, Lord. Strengthen my faith. He will. Trust the Lord. Maybe, again, you've never put your trust in Jesus Christ. Do you see that he loves you? Do you see what his death on the cross accomplished? Do you see what his resurrection accomplished? He will give you faith. You come to him weak as you are. He will do all the heavy lifting. He will do all the work. He will change your heart. He will give you faith. He will show himself to you. You come. Say, help me. That's your part. Come. Come to him. And Lord, I pray that you would encourage our hearts with your promises. I pray that you'd strengthen us. You are faithful. Thank you for your faithfulness. Thank you that your word is rock solid. Thank you that it is the unshakable foundation of our lives. And so we all turn back now and say, Lord, we are going to live by faith. Thank you. Break us free, Lord, from chains of unbelief right now. Break us free from temptations right now. Strengthen our faith in you, Lord, I pray in Jesus' name.